Good afternoon. Good to see you all. So there is an old story, some say it's an urban legend, of a Navy warship heading through the fog at night, and in the distance, in the distance there's a, a faint light. You might have heard this story before. If you, if you have, pretend like you haven't, so I can feel really original right now. Anyway, this Navy ship, in the fog at night, sees a distant light, and, f- and it's, it's a faint light, but the light keeps getting brighter and brighter. So the captain runs up to the helm to assess the situation, and there he hears a voice coming on the radio, coming from that light, saying, attention, attention, adjust your course by 30 degrees immediately. The captain gets on his radio, and he says, no, you adjust your course 30 degrees. To that, the radio said, no, you adjust your course 30 degrees. So they get into this, you know, childish debate over who's going to change course. The captain finally says, this is a Navy warship. So yeah, I suggest you move. To that, the faint light, uh, off in the distance, you can hear a radio voice coming from that direction where the radio says, okay, it's your call, but just so you know, This is a lighthouse. (laughs) During the time of Jesus, the world and all of its many social groups had its mind made up, culturally, politically, and religiously, when in Matthew 4, we read, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So Jesus leaves his town of Nazareth to begin his public preaching ministry in Capernaum. And the first words that are recorded of Jesus' public preaching ministry is this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. But there is a sense in which the world at that time, and our world is no different, They responded to Jesus in the same manner of the captain on a warship, saying essentially, no, we have our religion and our culture and our way of living. We're not moving. You move. And so we see in the story of the birth of Jesus that many resisted. They did not accept Jesus as the Son of God born of Virgin Mary. And if we step back away from perhaps our Christian upbringing, this is a hard story to believe. It's hard, not just because of the miracle of Mary's conception through the Holy Spirit, but mostly it's difficult because of what it means for our lives that Jesus came as the Son of God. It means that we all must change our course and live according to the words of Jesus. There's nothing we can do to change the course that Jesus has set. We can either walk in it or we can walk in disobedience to it, but it is what it is. It's there. It's a lighthouse. In order, so we, so we read, so we read the, the, these, these gospel accounts of Jesus' birth, right? And we see some people who, who resisted, some people who said no, but we also see some people who, who, who believed, who, uh, who responded to this great light and recognized it as truth. What Jesus is essentially saying here is, you know, we, 
we, we, we, you know, what God, what God is saying through this birth, this, the story of the birth of Christ essentially is, you know, um, it's like, hey, you know, my son, my child, the, uh, the, the world is a broken place, and I know that you, you see that. But I have come in the form of a child so that I can poke a hole between heaven and earth to reveal my truth to you. And again, there were some people that believed and some people who resisted. In order for this to be done, and this is what I find so fascinating, is that God intervened in the lives of these choice, unassuming characters, told them to radically change their course, and they had the audacity to believe to create a pathway for Jesus to come and be born. And that's the name of this Advent series, the audacity to believe, the courage and willingness to take the risks that come with believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Next week, we'll be looking at Elizabeth and Zechariah. The following week, we'll be looking at the Magi, or otherwise known as the Wise Men. On Christmas Eve, we'll be looking at the Shepherds. This week, we'll be looking at Joseph and Mary. Most would argue that the two greatest miracles in the gospel are the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus. Both events disrupt this collision course that the world was on. And all throughout history, people of all kinds are searching for the truth. Philosophers are always arguing for what is true. Where can truth be found? Who holds the truth? Who found the truth? Who can find the truth? Who taught it? Who will teach it? Where is it in nature? Where can we find truth in human history? And the birth of Jesus through Virgin Mary says, the truth has come in the form of a baby through a poor Jewish girl. So are you poor? Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you hopeless? God says, I have good news to you because I have come. I've poked a hole through heaven and earth to reveal myself to you so that you can know that the reason why you feel out of place in this world is because you don't belong to this world and I have come to take you home. It's the essence of the story of the birth of Jesus. Joseph and Mary believed this and so they changed the course of their entire lives and followed and obeyed. So did Elizabeth and Zechariah, so did the Magi, so did the shepherds, among others. They see this great light and they saw its immense value, and they saw how much value it had that they were willing to throw down everything else to follow this heavenly light. And you and I are called to do the same thing. And so what we'll be doing in this study of these characters that had the audacity to believe is to not only appreciate God's faithfulness through their lives, but to also reflect on what God has to say to us through those stories. And the passage that we'll be looking at today is found in Matthew 1, starting at verse 18. So let me read that, and then I'll pray. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus, her husband, was faithful uh, to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, 
But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful today that these, these accounts are in the scriptures, that we can read these accounts of the story of you coming to earth to bring us hope and peace. I also recognize that this word is alive, and, and um, in order for us to experience its aliveness, we need your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come and make this story come alive in us as an encouragement to our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the account of Jesus' birth in the book of Luke, the emphasis is on uh, Mary. It's told through the eyes of Mary. In Matthew 1, it's told through the perspective of Joseph. And it's more uncommon to reflect on this story through Joseph's perspective, so that's what we'll be doing today. So Joseph and Mary are pledged to be married. A pledge means to make a solemn promise, kind of like engagement, but more serious than that even. You know, in our, in our day and age, being engaged is a very serious commitment, but one could still change their mind, and it wouldn't be as earth-shattering as it would have been for Joseph and Mary to have changed their mind at this point. It was a solemn promise. It would have been shameful for them to have changed their minds. And on top of that, having sex outside of marriage would have been extremely shameful. Mary's very life was at risk. As we read, they, they were committed to remaining virgins until their marriage. Suddenly, Mary is pregnant. This means, what does this mean? It means that either Joseph and Mary had sex before marriage, or Mary was unfaithful to Joseph, right? That would, that would, those would be the two conclusions. And as a result, if they even survive this, they are going to be shamed and socially excluded and viewed as second-class citizens for the rest of their life. This is the situation that Joseph finds himself in. So what does he do? I'm sure he was very hurt. I'm sure he was very angry and confused. But by all accounts, what we do know is that he didn't want Mary to be exposed to public disgrace. This is the first sign of Joseph's character. How tempting would it be to say, well, you went off and slept with somebody else, and now you're pregnant, you go deal with the consequences. That would be the natural response in that time. No man would want to associate with somebody who would be uh, 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 brought to public shame like that. But the scriptures say because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph was holding two tensions and was trying to decide what to do. The two tensions, or the two, the two things that create a tension, rather, is faithfulness to the law, graciousness to Mary. So he goes off to consider what to do, and we, we can only imagine what must have been going on in his mind. And if he talked to his friends, can't we imagine his friends saying, like, dude, leave the girl. You associate with that person, your life is over. There's no hope for you. You did nothing wrong. You don't deserve this. But all we know is he goes off to consider what to do. That's when an angel appears and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And then in verse 24 of Matthew 1, it says, When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. 
but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So he did as the, as the angel of the Lord had told him. So in some sense, the angel helps Joseph manage this tension of being faithful to the law and gracious to Mary. But this came at an incredible cost to him. So what I want to do is I want to highlight three lessons from the story of Joseph and consider how they might apply to us today. Three lessons. Believe in God when we risk our reputation. Believe in God when we feel invisible. Believe in God when life is messy. You ready for this? Yeah? I heard a story about a Newly married couple, it happened this year, where the new bride was at the husband's family for Thanksgiving for the first time. Very nerve-wracking experience for anyone, right? To make a good impression. The husband's family comes from a very affluent family, and so this was no casual Thanksgiving. Fancy tables, fancy plates, plates for the meal, plates for the dessert, plates for the bread, big forks, little forks, big spoons, little spoons, Fold the napkin just right. Don't place it on your lap too soon. And then what do you do with the napkin, by the way, after a while? I don't know. I, I get confused at tables like that. But this is the environment that they were in. Halfway through the meal, the bride's face turns bright red, and her mouth is open wide in horror. The husband looks over and sees that somehow the back of her chair had broken into three different pieces. <laughs> fancy table, fancy chairs, all of that, right? And somehow... The back of the chair breaks, and there's even like pieces of wood on the floor. But when the husband realized that no one else saw it, he quickly switched chairs with her and then settled back into eating as if nothing had happened. And so they continue on for about five minutes. Everything's fine. But then he called out attention to everyone at the table, and he said, Mom, I'm so sorry, but somehow my chair just broke. Now, this is just a small day-to-day -day example of what modeling our lives after Joseph can look like. I only highlight it because it, it helps bring this down to earth, right? What does it look like to cover someone's shame? Joseph's situation was much more dramatic. Mary is pregnant before marriage, which means that Joseph is either going to look guilty or gullible. And if he tries to explain what actually happened... Mary is pregnant by the Spirit, he's going to seem crazy. So he is in a tough spot. But, and here's the lesson, he endured all speculations to cover Mary and to ultimately believe God through what the angel had told him. For Joseph to pause and for his reaction when he found out that Mary is pregnant to be first and foremost, how am I going to protect Mary, tells us that he must have been a person of integrity and compassion. You don't just wake up one morning and overcome your own ego like that. He wasn't looking out for himself. Even though it appeared that he was wronged, he was made a fool, he was looking out for his lover. And over time, he became fixed on the son that he was about to raise with her. So, to examine our own hearts a little bit, based on what we know so far about Joseph, this might be a little challenging for some of us. Whether we're single or married, to what extent would you or I have the inclination to follow God, even if it came at the cost of having a good reputation or good standing with the people you admire? Think about that. Try to imagine a scenario. You have a choice. 
believe and obey God or win over the respect of people that you love and admire? What would be your inclination if you were Joseph? Get a little more specific, which gets a little more challenging. For those of us who are married, to what extent do you have the inclination to protect your spouse over your reputation or good standing with your biological family? The example of the broken chair on Thanksgiving helps us wrap our minds just a little bit on our application here. But of course, again, it pales in comparison to what Joseph is going through. Without publicizing Mary's situation, he decides on a plan that's both faithful to the law and gracious to Mary, which is a foreshadowing of what Jesus will one day do for all of us. In doing so, he let people think that he's either, that he, he, he lets people think that either a thoughtful and controlled man lost his urges, right, making him look guilty, or he let people think that he's gullible, made a fool by letting his wife go off and cheat on him like In other words, Joseph bore the consequences of sin that he didn't commit. And to be clear, we're focused on Joseph because we're in Matthew 1, but Mary also had to endure speculations. They both did together, but they stood together in it. The story is less, I think, about Joseph, who he was, what he did, but it's more about what this story foreshadows through him, showing us who God is, and what God is about to do. The story ultimately foreshadows what Jesus will one day do for all of us. In Isaiah, referring to Jesus, this is the prophecy which says in Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So believing God at times will come at a cost to our reputation doesn't sound like good news, but I think that it is good news, and I hope that you track with me throughout this. Because at the end, my prayer is that we can feel encouraged. Being faithful to the word of God is not easy, by the way, because this is the story, you know? We have this story in front of us, and we just have to deal with it. It's what happened. So what lessons can we pull from it? Believe in God when we feel invisible. How about that? When doing this character study on Joseph, something struck me, and I didn't realize this before, but throughout this whole account, we do not hear Joseph speak one word. Some traditions call Joseph the silent saint. Although Joseph does not speak a word, there are four different accounts where the angel of the Lord speaks to him, and I find that interesting too. The angel of the Lord speaks to Mary once, to Joseph four times. The other times, the first time is when when the angel says, Go and marry Mary. The other three times is when the angel of the Lord is is helping Joseph protect his family by getting away from Herod and going from place to place. There's no account of Joseph speaking. And so so he, he is doing these radical acts to save his family from terror, and yet no one knew about it. He just acted faithfully. And that stands out to me, so let's, let's dig in a little bit more there. There are two other stories of Joseph later in Matthew that lead me to wonder if perhaps Joseph endured the pain of feeling invisible, yet continued to act faithfully. The last we hear of Joseph's life in Scripture is when Jesus is 12 years old, and Joseph and Mary are out looking for Jesus. He's missing for three days. They finally find him in the temple where he is talking to teachers of the law in the temple, 
And that's when Mary says, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Jesus turns and says, why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Verse 50 says, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So in case you missed it, Jesus' father goes out searching for his lost son for three days. His father finally finds him, and he and the mother say, where have you been? And then the son says, I had to be in my father's house. Ouch. We have to let our imagination run a little bit, but I feel the pain in Joseph's heart once again. His life, his life's calling was filled with decreasing his own reputation for the sake of his son and his wife, risking his life, risking his wife's life. Wouldn't the natural response to be to that child, are you kidding me? After all that I've done for you, you can't even acknowledge me as father? Wouldn't that be the natural response? But Joseph, silent. We don't hear from him. Who knows what was going on in his mind? We don't know what happened to Joseph after that. Many say that he died at a young age because Mary is later referred to as a widow. But there's one other time that Joseph is referred to, and it comes later on in Matthew. And again, I think it builds the case that perhaps he endured the pain of feeling invisible in his faithfulness. Matthew 13, verse 54 Coming to his hometown, Jesus coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his, isn't his uh, mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. There's a lot there. But I just want to focus on one verse. Isn't this the carpenter's son? That's what they're saying about Jesus. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Like, the only time that Joseph is acknowledged as fathering Jesus is when people are basically saying, isn't this just the son of a carpenter? If that's true, then how important could this guy really be? Again, faithfulness, quietness, but largely invisible. And yet, again, if we let our imagination expand a little bit off this story, who do you think influenced Jesus to become a carpenter in the first place? And who do you think first read to Jesus the scriptures? How do you think Jesus was prepared when he went out into the wilderness and was tempted by the devil three different times? Who read him scripture for the first time? We see that the teachers who went to the temple... But before that, he was 12 years old at that point. Who read the scriptures first? Joseph and Mary. By all accounts, Joseph's faithfulness to the law, graciousness to Mary, and his obedience and his faithfulness to Father Jesus largely goes unseen and unappreciated, unrecognized. So how do we apply that? If, you, if we want to live a life of faithful obedience, if we want to live a life that truly gives God the glory, then what else can we pull from this? other than to say we got to be prepared to speak less, listen more, obey, walk in obedience, even if we're not recognized or praised for it. One of the last chapters in one of my favorite books on leadership is called Integrity by Dr. Henry Cloud. 
and I'm slightly paraphrasing a little section here. He says, the greatest people are the ones who have not sought greatness, but served greatly the causes, values, and missions that were much bigger than them. That's when we see greatness emerge. But if we think we are bigger and that everything is about us, then we are reduced to a little world of our own making. Wow. So, you want to find an example of someone who is great, don't point to the person who thinks they're great. Don't point to the person, frankly, who's obsessed with being a great leader. Show me a person who walks in quiet obedience. Show me a person who cares for their spouse. Show me a person who raises their children and walks in obedience on a day-to-day way, right? If you want greatness, show me someone like that. It occurred to me that, um, you know, so, so Joseph and Mary and Jesus are, are uh, 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 being chased down by King Herod and his orders. And it occurred to me that King Herod, the one who came after them, he did it because his own throne was threatened. So his power was threatened by this newborn King Jesus. And it's been said that King Herod, even to protect his own power, even was willing to kill his own family members to protect this position of power. And so this is when it occurred to me that Joseph and King Herod are polar opposites. King Herod did everything he could to keep his power. Joseph did everything he could to let go of his power for the sake of his spouse and his son. And if we look back at history and we want to measure greatness, who is the greater man, King Herod or Joseph? What do you think? Last week, Pastor Chris ended the last sermon uh, in a series talking about the marks of a surrendered life by referring to what Jesus says to his disciples about greatness. Mark 35, starting at verse 43, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever must be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, we see through the life of Joseph a foreshadowing of what Jesus will one day do. In some ways, he's modeling for his child. Jesus endured a loneliness that we cannot fully comprehend so that we can experience intimacy with God. And if we want to walk in daily quiet obedience, and if we want to achieve true greatness, not in the King Herod sort of way, but in the Joseph sort of way, we must be filled with God on a daily basis, living for an audience of one. To God be the glory. Lord, give me the grace to walk in obedience each and every day. Not so that I can be recognized as being great or being talked, talked of positively, but so that I can bring you glory. Right? That's the heart of a true Jesus follower. Because the truth is, the more we look in the mirror and the more consumed we are with our reputation, I can speak for myself that when I'm in that kind of season, when, I'm, when I kind of indulge in self and I'm constantly pruning who am I and how do people see, see me, joy gets stripped away. I, even when good things are happening, I can't experience joy. Why is that? Well, it's because if all I'm trying to do is be happy with myself, I'm going to be sourly disappointed. <laughs> and you will be too. If you, if, you leave, if you shift your eyes off of Jesus and begin to look in the mirror at yourself, trying to be happy with yourself, you'll be miserable. And we'll never be happy with ourselves, and we'll never, and we'll never be happy with others' reactions of ourselves. And even when we are, it's fleeting. 
So where does that leave us? When our life is not about being good and being seen as being good, but about being a part of something way bigger than ourselves, when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, as Joseph does, that's when we can achieve true greatness and true joy. This enables us to transcend our surroundings and submit to God. I can't imagine enduring what Joseph had to endure and keeping my composure. Shows me that he must have been a man who somehow was transcending the surroundings because he was so fixated on what God had commanded him to do. So how about believing God when life gets messy? I promise this is going to get encouraging soon. (laughs) I mentioned that there were four different times the angels appeared to Joseph. Here are the four. I'll briefly mention them again, just so because it helps set set up the point. First time, again, is when the angel of the Lord tells uh, Joseph, take Mary as your wife. Second time is when the angel of the Lord speaks to him in a dream and says, get up, take the child and his mother to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. The third time is when, when he's in Egypt. He tells the angel of the Lord, says, get up, take your child, and go back to the land of Israel. And then finally, the last, the last time, the angel of the Lord says, go back to Nazareth. And that fulfills the prophecy that Jesus would be a Nazarene. So, believe in God when life gets messy. Imagine Joseph's life before all of this. So, he's all over the place, right? He, he lost everything except for his, his wife and his son, and his, and his whole life is, is devoted towards how am I going to protect and provide and obey the angel of the Lord now. But before all of that, Joseph was a young man. He was single. By all accounts, a hard worker, faithful. Like anyone in that situation, he would have desired a nice marriage. He would have desired to have some children at some point. He would have been well-respected in the Jewish community, perhaps. But all of that changed. His life got messy. But the lesson in this is that his life got messy, but when this situation was inserted into his life, he didn't reject it. He didn't try to fit it into a cleaned-up life that he had told himself that he was going to have. He made room for the messiness. He went off and considered what to do. Joseph models for us what a surrendered life can truly look like. How does this apply to us? At some point in time, I'm willing to guess that your life got messy. And if it hasn't yet, sorry to say, it will. I hope it's not devastating, but life is hard. Life is full of suffering. Life gets messy. Life is full of uncertainty. And when something really big happens... Not to oversimplify, but we have two basic choices before us. We can either force the event into our preconceived story that we've told ourselves, which we either try to kind of manipulate the circumstance and kind of squeeze it in, or we reject it or overlook it or just keep, you know, walking away from it, dodging it. It's a very stressful way to live, but a lot of us fall into that, right? Or we can accept it as a real part of our lives and make room for what God is doing and saying as a result, as Joseph did. Those of you who are single, you you say, I'm never going to have a marriage like that. My marriage is going to be like this, right? Those of you who haven't had children yet, I'm never going to raise children like that. I'm going to raise children like this, whatever. But life gets messy. Things don't turn out the way that we hope that they do. 
The question is not how cleaned up our life can be, but the question is how do we respond to the things that life gives us, right? How do we respond to the things that God does in our lives? Do we make room or do we manipulate it? One example that I'm privileged to witness on a regular basis through my work is for parents and families who are affected by disability. Um, Parents who make room for this unexpected event of having a child with special needs um, is an example to me because this is when life gets much messier and much more challenging than they would have expected or would have wanted. For those who do make room, they're like heroes to me. And how to obey God by embracing life as it happens to us and doing so and committing to it even though life is getting messier. But to be clear, does not mean that life is worse. It actually means that life gets much richer. I've never heard a parent of a child with a disability say my life has gotten worse as a result. They say my life has gotten richer. Messier, more challenging, yes, but richer? So we have much to learn from parents, I think, of every kind, because every responsible parent would cover for their child from the shame of being misunderstood or for the shame of their reputation being tarnished. Every parent, responsible parent would notice their child when no one else is noticing them when their child feels invisible. Every responsible uh, parent would keep providing and keep protecting for their children even through the messiness of life. So we see before us an example of what this looks like. As I begin to close, the musicians can come. Even for like the strongest of us here, um, or those who think of ourselves as strong ones or, or uh, not quite making the connection of how life gets messy quite yet. We all need encouragement. What God, what God requires of us is challenging, but he's, he has grace for us in this. And so let me close as the musicians begin to play with the word for each of us this Advent season, and I pray that it's an encouragement to all of us. Um, I heard last week from a very experienced therapist that um, this time of year is her busiest time of year because her clients are seeing their families. And I'm not suggesting that we're all dreading to see our families. Many of us might be blessed to have good relationship with our families. But I say that because some of us might need some encouragement right now in this season. It can deeply cut when the ones that we love the most misunderstand us. When they devalue us. It can deeply cut when the ones that we love the most don't notice us. Or they don't see us accurately. Right? They see us as the 15-year-old that hasn't changed, but it's like, no, that's not me anymore. Or if they do see us, they criticize us. It can also be very challenging around this time of year when our lives have gotten messy and we don't really know how to frame it in a positive way. So we dread seeing family because we don't really know how to answer, how are you doing? You know, give me some life updates. We don't know quite how to honestly answer those questions in this season of our life. Well, I have three summarizing statements for you 
and in some ways I'm going back over this sermon outline and reversing all three of these points. And it's not going to come off as super profound to you or new to most of you unless the Holy Spirit makes it profound and new to you. So before I say them, can we all stand to our feet? And I want to encourage us to open our hearts to receive something that I believe the Lord has for us today. And if you're comfortable, you can even put your hands out like this as a, in a posture of receiving. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Encourage us. Encourage us, God. Do you feel misunderstood by the ones who love you the most? Jesus understands you. Do you feel invisible or unseen by the ones that you love the most? Jesus sees you and he delights in you. Do you feel a sense of shame for whatever reason because of the way your life has turned out? Jesus is here to cover your shame, to wash you white as snow. And Jesus loves you. Jesus is proud of you. Just as Joseph got away with baby Jesus to hide him from danger, Jesus is now our ultimate hiding place. So in the difficult times this holiday season, here is the word we can cling to. It's found in Psalm 32, verse 7, and then I'll close. It says, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. God, I pray that you encourage your people today. When we feel misunderstood, when we feel invisible, and when life gets messy, be our hiding place. Tell us that you love us. Speak to that deep place that needs to hear that today. May you enable us to transcend our surroundings so that we're no longer worried about who gives us credit for what or how we're perceived or what people say, but just fixated on the living God who says we are enough because I have made you more than enough. Let us experience your love in a great, fresh way today, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray.